0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.
1: Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Heritage New Zealand. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme... Bill Southworth talks to Mark Maudsley, the Dunedin City Council's heritage officer. We catch you up with some Southern Heritage news. Gregor Campbell tells us about the first plane built in Otago, and Alison Breeze profiles a grand Dunedin house. Dunedin, with its large number of older buildings is usually regarded as New Zealand's heritage capital. The Dunedin City Council even has its own heritage officer and advisory team leader, Mark Maudsley. Now he's had time to settle into his job, we thought it'd be a good time to talk to him. This report from Bill Southworth.
2: Dunedin likes to think of itself as the heritage capital of New Zealand. The fact that it was once the largest city in the country, thanks to early European settlement and the discovery of gold in central Otago, means that great Victorian buildings both public and private flourished. Unfortunately some foolish demolition took place. One thinks of the Grand Stock Exchange and the wonderful stone railway station in Port Chalmers as examples of this. However today there's a greater realization that heritage buildings attract tourists and form an important part of the city's tourist income. The Dunedin City Council has acknowledged the importance of preserving heritage buildings and it has Mark Maudsley as its heritage advisor. I asked him about how he saw his role.
3: Yeah, it's been great. I started with the Dunedin City Council December 2021. I originally started as the heritage advisor, and since starting with DCC, I've moved into the team leader role, uh, so overseeing the heritage, urban design and biodiversity teams. Heather Bockup has also joined us as the heritage advisor at DCC, but the role's been great. It's a really good opportunity to get out there and meet with building owners and see the work they're doing on heritage buildings.
2: Of course there's a great tradition now in Dunedin about preserving historic buildings. One thinks of the historic precinct and so on. What did you think of that development?
3: Absolutely. It's really good to see the work that's been done down there and the work that's been done to create that as a destination. And of course going down there on a Saturday morning it, it's bustling with people and cafes, so it's really good. I've been away from the South for eighteen years, so the change that happened in that time it's quite remarkable and it really shows what can be done with the buildings around Dunedin.
2: Some people may say, look, these are just old buildings, why preserve them? How would you respond to that?
3: Yeah, look, I think they contribute significantly to the character of the city, and they tell the story of the colonial settlement of Dunedin, the gold rush, you know, the wealth that was in Dunedin at the time. So these buildings are really important for telling the story of Dunedin as we know it. It's not the only story, but it's definitely part of the story, and These buildings are really important landmarks around the city that Dunedin's recognisable for.
2: Also, of course, uh, the tourists love them, the, the cruise ships and so on coming in. I don't think they come to look at our new buildings, do they?
3: No, there's, there's a, a large appetite to come and look at the historic landmarks around Dunedin and you can see that when the cruise ships are in, the, the amount of people photographing the historic buildings around the city. So it really is an asset for the city in terms of tourism but we're very fortunate to live in the city and enjoy them every day as well.
2: So it makes sense in terms of revenue to the city and, and to the businesses here?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge asset to the city and you know, there's some discussion around whether or not Dunedin could be the heritage capital of New Zealand. Well, um, some people say it already is. Absolutely. And I think there's some competition from Whanganui in the North Island. So we may have to take that title to a debate and, and see what Whanganui can bring to the table.
2: I've been to Whanganui quite often. It's a great little city, but it's not, not a patch on Dunedin for heritage, I can assure you.
3: I have to agree with you there, Bill. But um, they have done some fantastic work up there in recent years and it's really looking quite smart and really shows the work and the effort they put into restoring their heritage buildings.
2: So what developments are in store for DCC heritage policies?
3: Yeah, so Council recently asked staff to develop a heritage action plan to replace the 2007 heritage strategy. That work hasn't started yet, but it's a really good opportunity for us to get out there, consult with the community and find out what the priorities are around retaining heritage buildings and what we need to do to protect them. So it's a really good opportunity for us to take a proactive approach to working with building owners and manage the heritage assets across the city. Just this week, also, Council recently asked staff to... To look at the vacant spaces in CBD buildings, and a lot of the heritage buildings in the CBD have vacant upper levels, so there's a really good opportunity there to explore what can be done to enable the full use of those buildings and, and in a way, support the retention of the heritage buildings around the city.
2: There's been another development recently which some of us find concerning. There are grand houses in Dunedin that are part of the look of Dunedin that have recently been demolished or about to be demolished. I think of one recently demolished by the university in the uh, Union Street West. There are others that have either under threat or been demolished in George Street. Now, aren't those grand houses part of the look of Dunedin and aren't they worth preserving?
3: Absolutely. As a heritage advocate, it's always sad to see an old building be demolished. It's an irreversible loss that we we can't get back. In terms of the district plan, there are heritage precincts across different parts of the city and they are there to manage the character contributing buildings to the city, but they don't extend all parts of the city. You may be familiar with the pre-1940s rule that was introduced through Variation 2, and that looked at putting controls around the demolition of pre-1940s building that was repealed by the court as part of the appeals process on that rule. So there's definitely some interesting developments that are happening in the space, and I think the community is very aware of the value of these buildings in terms of what they bring to the city and character.
2: All right, and concluding that uh, the DCC would like to do something about the problem, but it's got a legal leg iron on it.
3: Yeah, uh, the, the balance of growth and retaining historic buildings is, is part of the balance that sits in the background of, of how the city grows as it moves forward.
2: Just returning to that uh, building that the university demolished in uh, Union Street West, Now that was a beautiful-looking building, but it seems they were just able to go ahead and knock it down.
3: Yeah, there are buildings in Dunedin that don't have protection on them. Heritage New Zealand Pauheri I have an archaeological authority which relates to buildings that are pre-1900, but any building post-1900 that isn't protected by the district plan doesn't have restrictions on the demolition of it.
2: Is there anything the DCC could do about that?
3: There are methods for protecting heritage buildings, but it requires them being added to the heritage schedule through the district plan. That is reviewed frequently, and we're always trying to balance the risk to buildings versus the importance of buildings to the city. So as heritage advisors, Heather and I are always considering what, where the risks are coming from and what the most important buildings are to protect.
2: Turning to a different sort of um, protection, industrial heritage. One thinks of the Dunedin Gasworks, of the Sims Shipbuilding uh, building in Port Chalmers, and uh, perhaps the roadwalk that uh, Donaghy's had. What's the case for preserving industrial heritage?
3: Yeah, industrial heritage is a really unique aspect of Port Chalmers, South Dunedin, areas that had a strong industry. And these, we're very fortunate to retain these buildings. So there's a, a really good case for retaining parts of the city that no longer operate in the same way that we we know they did historically. These industrial buildings are, are a legacy to the past. They represent industry that we no longer have. And it's important to tell those stories of how Dunedin developed in that colonial period and the industry that was there to support the the, the people that lived in Dunedin during that time. So these things are are going to become relics of the past. They they already are, and it's really great to see some of those buildings that have been retained because it's a a tangible way to tell the story of how these buildings and the industries operated within the city.
2: Of course, it's not just great industrial sites that folk want to preserve. One thinks of the workers' cottage that was recently transferred onto the site temporarily of the gasworks. What do you think the argument is for retaining a 19th century workers' cottage?
3: Yeah, the Braemar Street Cottage, it's an interesting little building. And and of course, there's a really good story to tell there in terms of how gas appliances and gas was used within a residential setting. And, of course, it, sitting it right beside the gas works or close to in the future will be a great way of being able to tell the story from an industrial perspective and also from the domestic perspective so people can really understand how that technology was working in both aspects of the city. Can you tell me something about the
2: Dunedin City Council Heritage Fund and how that operates?
3: Yeah, certainly. So Dunedin City Council operates a heritage fund which supports owners of historic buildings to repair and maintain, adapt and reuse their buildings, or even upgrade them for code compliance. So that funding is there to assist people to look after the heritage assets of the city. And as heritage advisors, Heather and I are able to go out to meet with those building owners, provide advice, and help them get their applications through to the funding rounds. The funding rounds happen four times every year, so every three months, and we we work very closely with building owners to support them there. Also, Heritage New Zealand, Pau Tonga, have an active role in providing advice, so we can also partner building owners with the conservation advisor from Heritage New Zealand as well.
2: And how much money has the DCC set aside for that sort of work?
3: Annually it's around 680,000 and that's divided uh, by the four rounds. So we quite often get a large number of applications and the amount of value of the applications often exceeds the value that can be distributed. So it's great to see a really good uptake on that, but of course we'd always like to see more owners coming to the fund, uh, bring their applications so we can assist them through process and also connect them with other funding opportunities that are available.
2: Finally, can we expect that the DCC will put a lot of energy into preserving heritage in the future?
3: Absolutely. I think it's a great asset to the city, and as we look to the future, thinking about what we can build in terms of the character and the legacy of this place, we've got a fantastic wealth of historic buildings left from the gold rush, and we've been very fortunate to retain those throughout most of the 20th century. The loss of heritage buildings is irreversible, so we've got to be very careful about how we can protect these and and the decision-making that goes into retaining those buildings as, as people look to develop them or develop the sites they're on.
2: Mark Maudsley, thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Bill Southworth was
1: talking to Mark Maudsley, the DCC's Heritage Officer and Advisory Team Leader. The fight to retain the Arthur Street School's historic Infants Building has been won. It will now remain on its present site. The Ministry of Education had planned to shift the building to Christchurch, but the Southern Heritage Trust objected and began a year-long campaign to leave the building where it is. Arthur Street in its various forms is the country's oldest school. The infants' Building was built in 1887 to separate infants from other students in order to protect their health, and it became the model for many such buildings in schools around New Zealand. Ministry Asset Management General Manager Simon Hathorl said, at present the Ministry did not have an estimate of the cost or an exact purpose for the building's refit though initial thoughts are for curriculum activities like metalwork and woodwork. The Heritage Trust has also been busy moving a 19th-century workers' cottage on to the Dunedin Gasworks site in South Dunedin. It's the third time the cottage has been moved and is only a temporary measure until a permanent home can be found for it. The shift was from Tahuna Park because the park is needed for the upcoming FIFA Women's World Cup. The house was originally built on the corner of Braemar and Lawn Streets opposite the gasworks in the 1880s and was one of many on the street lived in by gas workers. Over the years, as the South Eden area became more and more industrialized, the house was eventually the last one standing in Braemar Street. A decade ago, when it was lined up for demolition to make way for yet another business premises, Southern Heritage Trust founding trustee Anne Barsby took it upon herself to save it by moving it to an empty section nearby in Mickey Street. She had plans to restore it as a place for the public to visit and learn how workers of yesteryear lived, what life in industrial South Dunedin was like, and how gas appliances were used in the home. At the Dunedin Winter Show in 1910, people could, for a special fee, see something they'd not seen before, an aeroplane built in their city. It was the culmination of seven years of experimentation and construction by Henry John Gill.
4: Gregor Campbell
1: reads from the account of the plane in the Littleton Times.
4: His machine bears a general resemblance to the Blériot type, but it carries four devices which are not in use on any other flying machine in the world. The first of these is an air sack under the body of the machine, which is filled from the exhaust of the engine. One purpose of this is to form a float should the machine drop suddenly to earth, though this latter contingency is rendered practically impossible by two other devices, of which more later. But the inflated sack is not only a precautionary measure, it is also a help to buoyancy, since it will lift 70 pounds of the total weight of the machine. That weight, by the way, is but 460 pounds though the machine is 36 feet long and 31 feet from wing to wing. The second patent has an object similar to the first and is one for which long and unsuccessful search has been made by aviators. The problem was to be able instantly to check the dip of a monoplane should the engine fail suddenly tightly rolled on the margins of the wing frames of Mr Gill's monoplane are cloth blinds and in case of a sudden failure of the engine the pilot has only to touch a lever and in the same instant 190 square feet of cloth cover the frame of the wings and not only prevent a sudden drop but also prevent a capsize acting in fact as lateral supports like those on the Samoan canoes. In the bows is another device curved frame also fitted with cloth blinds which then stretched across the frame as they can be in a second when the aviator presses a pedal with his foot prevent the monoplane from taking a header this patent is termed a curvative elevator and is the only thing of its kind on any aerial machine the aviator steers by means of a triangular rudder in the bows but in case a right angle turn is desired, he can accomplish this by means of two appliances known as aeranoids, which are fitted on the extreme end of the wings. By means of this, Mr Gill claims that he can run broadside onto the wind and not only head to the wind or with the wind, as is compulsory with other monoplanes. The engine is a model of bulkless power, It is only 14 inches long and 18 inches high and generates 24 to 30 horsepower. A marine engine of one-sixth the power would occupy twice the space and weigh twice as heavy. In theory, to sum up, Mr Gill has apparently overcome many difficulties that have not previously been successfully met by aviators. This writer has a little knowledge of early aeronautics and, with the hindsight of historical knowledge, can make a few comments on Gill's design. The inflated sack, filled with exhaust fumes and preventing an accidental sinking, is a good idea, though an image which seems to have been part of the patent application shows a boxy fuselage which must have added to the drag of the machine, though that might not have been significant given the slow speed which was anticipated. Similar flotation devices were standard on carrier-borne planes in the 1920s. The tightly rolled cloth blinds, which were ready at a moment to enlarge the surface area of the wings, are not too well described in the times, but seem to be like a parachute. This concept has been applied in recent decades to light planes and gliders, and has saved lives. I have met a man who claimed his father was saved by one in a glider collision, otherwise, he would not have been born. The curvative elevator also sounds like a good design feature, producing a rapid change in the centre of lift of the plane and possibly doing exactly what Henry Gill hoped it would. He had certainly experimented with his design in model form and presumably had confidence in its effectiveness. The aeronoids on the wings are what we today would call ailerons, which were becoming standard on aeroplanes by 1910. In June of 1910, Henry Gill made a private flight test of his plane at Anderson's Bay, it flew for 900 yards and attained a height of 160 feet. In attempting a turn, the structure became overstressed and failed, causing a crash requiring repairs, which took a few weeks. On August 6, 1910, a public flight was attempted. A small crowd gathered near the Palaszczuk Bay cement works at 10am and watched for four hours while the machine was assembled. Then flight was attempted but the engine didn't develop its full power, so a few runs over the ground were all that people saw. A further attempt was made on the 21st, but the engine began to break its mounting and had to be switched off. Again, an attempt was made at the end of the month on the beach between St Kilda and St Clair, but the chosen takeoff area had become a small lagoon due to recent seas. An attempt was made nearby, but the soft sand made takeoff impossible. Not long after that, The Gill Aerial Syndicate met and decided to end its financial support of the machine. Its cost was £700, which amounts to $140,000 today. Henry John Gill went back to photography and died in 1932. His grave can be found in Dunedin's Northern Cemetery. And I am the pleasantly buoyant Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters
1: finally, Alison Breeze from Heritage New Zealand profiles a grand house where once lived a renowned Dunedin lawyer.
0: Today's residence that we'll be focusing on is 16 Pitt Street. Some of the members of the Southern Heritage Trust were lucky to visit um, on a tour recently when it was up for sale. Situated on the corner of Pitt and Elder Street, 16 Pitt House was designed by James Louis Salmond and was built by William Henderson in 1898 as a residence for Alfred Charles Hanlon QC. After the arrival of the first Scottish immigrants in 1848, settlement began in this area as early as 1849, and Pitt Street has had an early and long association with medical professionals. The first was Dr William Purdy, buying a house near the bottom of the street, which had been built for, and then later rejected by, the leader of the Targo Settlement Scheme, Captain William Cargill. From the 1880s, several doctors chose the street for their substantial homes and surgeries and other prestigious professionals moved in as well. The house was built for and occupied for 46 years by Alf Hanlon QC, who rose to fame as Minnie Dean's defence lawyer. There is an interesting television series online called In Defence of Minnie Dean on Ngā Sound and Vision's website. He was by all accounts a very charismatic man. At the age of 15, he was articled to J.A.D. Adams as a law clerk, and after six years, he was admitted as a barrister and solicitor by J.S. Williams in December 1888. On qualifying, though, Hanlon's position with Adams was no longer available, and he was forced to set up his own legal practice. Hanlon initially struggled as a lawyer, going many months with absolutely no clients or visitors, He mentioned his excitement of hearing footsteps towards the office door, only to find that it was the debt collectors. After slowly starting to build up his reputation as a defence lawyer, he earned enough money in one estate case in 1893 to afford him to furnish his house at the time, and, as he puts it, put into effect a plan to marry. Early in 1898, the section in Pitt Street was bought for £335, which today is around £73,000, with a permit applied for building um, the house in January. The Hanlons had moved into the house by November. Family history states that the Pitt Street house was a wedding present from Richard Hudson of the biscuit and chocolate fame to his daughter Mary-Anne, who married with the new son-in-law Alf. An enthusiastic amateur actor, Hanlon apparently named the house Elsinore after the castle in Shakespeare's Hamlet. Hanlon was also one of the founders of the Dunedin Competition Society and the Dunedin Shakespeare Club. The architect of 16 Pitt Street was James Lewis Salmon and much of his eclectic style was incorporated into the exterior design, such as the finials and timber coins. The beautiful watercoloured plans are in the Hocken collections within the Salmon collection. Most of the external Victoria detail was removed during 1922 when a major renovation project was carried out. Interestingly, it was still under the Hanlon's ownership and under the original architect, Salmond. So within a very short amount of time, Salmond had completely renovated his own design. The Victorian ornamental work was replaced and the sash windows were converted to lead-like casements. The entire transformation was a move towards the arts and craft movement that was very popular at the time. The interior was changed also, but in a less dramatic fashion, with finer Victorian details still remaining. Hanlon's recollections of his cases and work are available on the National Library Digitised Book Collection. He chronicles his trial of Minnie Dean, along with many other cases. He's most famous for the Minnie Dean case, even though that's one of the few he actually lost. Hanlon's career extended over more than 50 years and he was appointed to the King's Council on the 14th of April 1930. He was a very impressive figure, both in stature, as he was over six feet tall, and as a lawyer. His examination and cross-examination of witnesses and his address to the jury were legendary, and when word circulated around Dunedin that Hanlon was to appear, the downstairs area of the Dunedin Supreme Court would fill with members of the profession and the gallery with the public. His practice was not limited to Dunedin, and he appeared in courts throughout the country, Either although he mentioned in his autobiography, many criticised him for staying in his hometown of Dunedin. The Hanlans sold the property to Michael and Isabel Haggart in 1958, who made some further alterations to the building in 1965. They remained at the property quite a long time too, and it sold in 1993, and again in 2008, and has just currently been on the market, and it's just sold again. Some of the 1920s changes have since been reverted to the original Victorian style. So 16 Pitt Street is a registered Category 2 historic place and you can find the story soon on our brand new Heritage New Zealand Pohereitanga website online at heritage.org.nz. And this story was brought to you by Alison Breeze reporting for Heritage Matters.
1: The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30am and replayed on the following Sunday at 7pm. There are further replays on the third week of the month, Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. As Aotearoa New Zealand's national heritage agency, Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events, and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. Support the heritage of
3: Aotearoa New Zealand check out visitheritage.co.nz This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support
4: from New Zealand On the Air.